again from Arlington, Texas with episode 374. Today's episode, Time to Plan the Spring Garden. Um, yesterday I went into some dark areas and I even got some emails back and some comments from some of you guys that actually doubted some of the projections that I, that I talked about, um, especially with Social Security. I have a few people that think, well, they could go on forever because they could just keep taking money from us. The problem is the math and the numbers don't add up. And we talked about things like the national debt. We talked about a lot of really dark things, a dire warning for Congressman Ron Paul. And I thought, after an episode like that, we need something much more positive. So today I'm going to focus on what we can actually do and on the things that we can do that it won't matter if things get really bad or if things stay really good. If we're completely wrong about these things, they'll be good for us. Now, what can be better than that than being able to feed ourselves from our own backyard and being involved in our own local agricultural economies? And nothing is more local than what you grow or what your neighbor grows. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Before we do that, though, let's knock out some housekeeping. First item on the agenda today is always just taking care of our sponsor, sponsor of the day number one, Western Botanicals. Check out Western Botanicals. They're absolutely an outstanding source of all your herbal needs. Um, everything that they have is either organic or wild-crafted herbs, uh, great sources of information. Uh, check out Western Botanicals. They are a great supporting uh, member of the Survival Podcast sponsor community. They're also a big supporter of the member support brigade. So you guys that are member uh, brigade members, remember, you get 25% off all Western Botanical purchases just by being a member's brigade member. So they are a big supporter both as a sponsor and as a supporting vendor. So let's give those guys some business. Uh, number two, Safe Castle Royal. Um, Safe Castle Royal is also a huge supporter of the MSB. $29 lifetime discount membership to Safe Castle, free to all MSB members. Um, that's a pretty big deal that uh, Vic stepped up and did that, and I really appreciate him. And I want to let you guys know that right now, uh, over at Safe Castle, uh, Vic is running a 25% off all Mountain House items sale. Uh, with some really big bonuses for large purses. If you're really going to stock up, you know, buy several cases or something like that, um, then there's some actually some additional uh, uh, benefits over there right now for that. But even if you just want to buy a little bit of stuff and kind of extend your long-term storage capabilities, now would be the time to do it with Safe Castle Royal because they have a 25% discount. Uh, next up, moving on, I want to remind you we do have a gear shop with survival podcast t-shirts, patches, etc. Uh, most of the time when I do YouTube videos anymore, I'm wearing my survival pass, uh, podcast t-shirt. Great t-shirts, high quality. Uh, show your uh, affiliation with TSP with pride. Um, we right now have uh, the second run of challenge coins being produced. Uh, so get your pre-orders in on your coins now. Uh, the first uh, the first wave sold out before they came in. So that tells you how popular those are. Uh, last but not least, I want to remind you to consider joining the Member Support Brigade. I just told you two of the benefits. I don't really pitch the brigade. I try not to turn the show into a uh, an infomercial for the brigade. But what I want to do today, real quick, I want to just read off to you 
all the vendors, just the vendors, not the videos, not the ebooks, not anything else, just the vendors that are offering discounts um, right now for you. I'm not even going to say exactly what they do, uh, but just reading them off in the order they're listed in the brigade back end. Safe Castle Royal, obviously. Uh, Western Botanicals, obviously. Murs Hyphen Radio. Uh, Survival.com, that's Ron Hood's website. Terraprince Inc., The Berkey Guy, Self-Sufficient Life, Backwoods Home Magazine, Black Belt Magazine, give me a second, I'll come back to that one, Smith Werder, uh, High Mowing Organic Seeds, Global Sun Ovens, and Fire Pistons for Wilderness Solutions. All of those people offer discounts uh, of varying degrees to uh, MSB members. That's just the discounts. There's also a ton of e-books, there's a ton of videos, and... You know, if you add it up, it's a several hundred dollar uh, value from day one for your contribution of five dollars a week or fifty dollars a year to support the show. So really consider doing that. Now, Black Belt Magazine, a subscription to Black Belt Magazine is like, let me see, let me go ahead and look at it so I don't get it wrong because I have it written right here. Thirty six ninety five a year to subscribe to Black Belt Magazine. They just cut a deal with uh, Survival Podcast. $18.50 for your first year as a subscriber to Black Belt Magazine. So if you're in MMA and martial arts, there's nothing bigger than Black Belt Magazine, 50% off a subscription. That's a brand new benefit. Um, I have more coming this week. All right, so I'm, I'm kind of living up to my commitment, I think, to make sure I keep adding value. Enough on that. Let's get into the main topic of today's show because we have a, a lot to talk about today with uh, gardening and getting into spring. I want you to realize that it's cold out. I understand that. And I know some of you are thinking, this, this clown's down in Texas, right? What does he know about cold? Uh, well, frankly, if you're from Illinois or Indiana or whatever, um, I know that you're dealing with a much harsher environment, uh, Maine, Washington, uh, even Oregon, as long as you're on the coast, you kind of get a break if you're on the coast on the west side. Um, Montana, Wyoming, Idaho, all the, look guys, I know. Because I grew up, at least I grew up in my high school years, uh, in Pennsylvania, in, in central PA. And, and it got damn cold and there was a lot of snow. But even here today, just before I started recording, I walked out my back door, where I, ha I keep a little, one of those red Folger plastic cans on my counter, and when it gets full of coffee grinds and produce waste, I go throw it in my compost bin. Great way to do that, inexpensive, free, basically, leftover, uh, those little plastic coffee cans are the perfect way to store your uh, compost stuff until you get out the door with it. When I walked out today, the ground was frozen. Like, it's been raining and raining and raining. Like, yesterday I told you how much it rained. So, I'm like, man, I really don't want to go out there in my slippers, but I did it anyway. And, and I was like, it's going to be all muddy. It wasn't muddy because the ground's solid as a rock. So, even here, okay, I understand that, um, that it's cold right now. So, you're sitting there thinking, well, how much garden planning and gardening work can I be doing when it's that cold? Well, there's, some, there's a couple things, but one of the first things I want to talk to you about is, if you're planning this year on doing some of your own seed starting, especially with plants that have long growing seasons to get into production, like tomatoes and peppers, in just about every part of the country, it's already time to start your seeds. I, I know that seems crazy, but with, let's say, peppers and tomatoes, you want to go and look at when's your last frost date, last average frost date, for safety, add two weeks to it, okay, and that's the time to set out your peppers and tomatoes and things like that, 
And then depending on what you want out of your growing season, count back 8 to 12 weeks, and that's when you should be starting seeds like peppers, tomatoes, and eggplants. Now, if we're sitting here on February the 9th, right, and we just go with round months, we've got March 9th, April 9th, May 9th. Most of you, that's 12 weeks. Most of you in just about all parts of the country, with few exceptions, by May, you should have everything in the ground, at least for the spring portion. Now, if we go at an eight-week interval, we're looking at April 9th-ish, right? So, you should have stuff. Now, I need to have stuff started, too, and I do have some things started. I'm actually behind a little bit. Uh, but I'm not going to go as big with the garden this year because we'll probably be moving right in the middle of gardening season. We'll finally be out of here. So, I'm, I'm holding back a little bit, but I've got a lot of stuff started. Because I want some tomatoes and peppers and stuff like that. One, I want to be in the garden producing when people are looking at the house. I want to be like, wow, that really is a vegetable garden, just not a bed. But now is the time to be starting a lot of things that need that long growing season. We're only maybe a month away in most of the country from putting things in the ground that can handle the early frost. And in parts of the country like I'm in, I've already planted one bed full of peas. I usually do square foot gardening and all that, but for this uh, little crop rotation period here, I went out and planted a low-growing snap pea, something that doesn't need a trellis. I filled the whole bed with it. Uh, yesterday I went and pulled back the mulch a little bit, looked down. The peas are swelling, starting to put some roots out, just starting to sprout, haven't come up above the mulch yet. That's okay, but within another two weeks, one or two good sunny days, and I'll have peas six inches high, and they'll handle the frost. And if we get really bad frost, I'll go throw a floating row cover over them. Peas can handle down into the high 20s with very little protection unless they get hit with ice directly on them. And even then, uh, they'll handle it, especially certain varieties of peas. So I planted a hardy kind of a winter uh, snap pea uh, in that bed. Now, I did that this time of year so that it would nitrify the soil. Uh, because it's a legume, and I you know, real inoculated it with a legume inoculant as well. Now, let's say that you live somewhere where you're thinking, well, that's great. Again, this clown's in Texas. Well, how hard would it be with a, with a standard dimension raised bed to go down to Home Depot and find some cheap lumber or go to buy a construction site and get some scrap lumber and build a frame about two foot high around that bed and just cover it with polyfilm and, you know, you get a staple gun and staple it on there and do that just for, right, the, 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 for the next three weeks to get that jump start onto a plant that's pretty winter hardy anyway. Could have already done that and had things in the ground if you really wanted to. So I want you to start thinking and understanding that just because it's cold outside, just because the weatherman says more snow's coming, doesn't mean that, like, it's not even time to think about this stuff yet. Because what's going to happen, just like people ignore winter, and they don't worry about winter, and they're grasshoppers, and then all of a sudden it's cold as hell outside, and you're running to the store to buy food because uh, your, your shelves are empty. Just like we watch people do that, like they wipe the shelves off uh, the, the, the grocery stores in Virginia uh, last week because the snowstorm was coming. People do the same thing with spring, only the consequences aren't as severe. Unless you want a garden, then they're pretty severe. What happens is they go, oh, it's cold, it's cold. I'll wait till it's warm to start thinking about doing my gardening work. Well, then you're into a position where a lot of the things that you, you plant directly into the ground that are cold-hardy, onions, beets, 
carrots and things like that. They may not have been going gangbusters in those cold months, but they had a start. And then when the warm weather comes, they take off, and they're your first crops. Well, you miss those. Lettuces, spinaches, things like that, you miss them. Or it's just as they start to produce, it gets really hot out, and they bolt. With lettuce and spinach, what that means is they go to seed. And they get bitter, and you have to cut them off at the ground or harvest the seed and cut them off at the ground and compost them. So you need to be thinking about these things, I guess, is the point uh, that I'm trying to make here. I also want you to really think about the things that you can grow. I mean, honestly, if you want to plant garlic, that was September. You should have planted it. I think a lot of people don't really know that. Planting garlic right now is not really a great idea. Onions, you can probably plant onions just about anywhere right now, especially if you use onion sets um, or uh, onion plants. You can just plant them. And even if it's cold and even if they don't grow, once it gets warm, they'll take off. The exception is if your ground is truly frozen, like my ground is frozen at the surface right now, give it an hour, let the sun warm it up, it'll unfreeze. If you go out and you take your, your trowel and you stick it into your soil and you can't even get it down into the soil, it can't be worked, you can't plant there. But let's say you want to plant some lettuce, some spinach, uh, some things like that, and you, you want to go put that little like mini greenhouse I just described, which I'm going to hold back a little bit on, uh, but the ground's frozen. Well, if you go put the greenhouse there and wait a day or two, your soil underneath there will thaw, and you should be able to move it out of the way and plant. The other thing you can do to make soil workable faster is just get a black sheet of plastic, stretch that directly on top of it over your raised bed, let the sun hit that, it'll thaw the ground very, very quickly. You'll also need to give it some time to dry out a little bit once it thaws, because usually the ground's quite soggy. I really would love to go outside today and plant. I have like two dozen um, broccoli plants that really need to get into the ground that I started uh, about ten weeks ago. They're beautiful little plants now. Uh, I've wanted to plant them for a week. It's just too wet. And sooner or later I'm going to have to bite the bullet, pull back the mulch, and stick them into the soggy wet ground, because they really need to get into the ground. But the only thing preventing me from putting broccoli in the ground right now, mostly unprotected. This is something that I'll cover only if we're going to have really severe weather, and I'm not worried about the temperature dropping. Temperature with broccoli can drop down into the low 20s. It's, it's when it gets ice on top of it. And I have pictures last year. Once the plants are mature, they'll even come back from ice on top of them. So there's a lot of things that you can be doing right now. Onions, leeks, beets radishes, peas, fava beans. This is a great time in the south for fava beans. You can't grow them in the summer down here. Fava beans are an awesome bean. They store well. Uh, they make a reasonable approximation of hummus. It's not hummus, but it's more like a Mediterranean, uh, a, a, you know, northern Italian version of hummus. You make basically the same way using fava beans instead of chickpeas. So there, there's all types of things you can be doing right now. You could also be, if you have a bed that really hasn't been producing very well for you, well, maybe it's a good time to go out and get a good winter cover, cover crop going, um, like a, a hairy vetch, like a winter vetch variety that will nitrify the soil. Or just put down a bunch of winter peas, even if you don't get a harvest out of them, even if you only let them grow a foot tall. Chop them down, turn them into the soil. Get that bed ready for spring. There's tons of things that you could be doing right now. Um, the next thing I want you to do is I want you to realize that in this country, um, 
the majority of the country, and I would say that means 98% or better of the country, experiences at least some weather that's freezing, right? Below 32 degrees for a sustained period of time. Uh, most of Texas has that. Even down into, you know, the Austin area and down into the San Antonio area, they still get freezing temperatures. Florida, everything but down to the very, very tip gets some freezing temperatures. California, except for that, you know, the real southern portion of it and the, and the coastal region that gets kind of buffered by that warm sea gets freezing temperatures. And everything north and in the middle of that whole region I just described gets freezing temperatures. So even though I've got some leeway, I've got some longer growing season down here in Texas than you might in Idaho, we have a common problem. And that is a lot of the things that we like to eat, when it freezes, they either go dormant and or die. And the die part is, is the worst part. So I can grow a fig tree down here. You can be up in zone 6 and grow a fig tree. Your fig tree, if you grow the right variety, like a brown turkey fig, can freeze to the ground. Just go out and mulch the hell out of it. It comes back next year and sprouts figs. Right? You can grow blackberries, raspberries. They die to the ground, they come back. You can grow peach trees, almond trees. Leaves fall off, come back. That's not the problem. The problem are mostly the annual vegetables and some of the fruits that we would like to grow that we generally import because they're hard to grow in temperate climates. We, the whole United States, with very few exceptions, is what's considered a temperate zone meaning that it actually gets cold and the seasons change and there's four distinct seasons and in the wintertime it freezes. Well, that's why every single person in the United States that's actually serious about gardening should have a greenhouse of some sort. I think that it makes a lot of sense to build yourself at least, let's say, like a 6 by 8 walk-in little greenhouse. I think most of the greenhouse kits are extremely overpriced for what you could build yourself. It's really not difficult at all for you to get into a situation where you go out, buy a little bit of lumber, and uh, I think it's called Tough Tex, but if you go to Home Depot or a Lowe's or any place like that, you go over into the building section, you look for overhead uh, uh, vinyl awnings, you'll find a product, I believe again it's called Tough Tex, uh, you'll find various products that they look like, the almost look like corrugated steel, but they're made out of plastic. And just about every manufacturer of that now makes kind of a filtered variety that's designed for use in greenhouses. Well, with a few panels of that and some basic stick uh, carpentry, you can put together a nice little permanent greenhouse. You can make that as big as you like. You can build it with plans to expand it later. So you can start out with something small, and if you handle your roof right, do it maybe a little bit different than everybody else's with a typical, uh, uh, you know, gable roof, you can, uh, you can plan to expand it later or just build maybe a second one right next to it. There's just so much flexibility if you build your own, and I think you could probably take the money that you would spend to buy one little 6x8 greenhouse kit, and you could probably build, based on my calculations, about a 10 by 14, which is probably bigger than most people want in their backyard. Now, why do I say you need a greenhouse? Because there's so many things that opens up to you. Uh, I purchased that little springhouse greenhouse some of you guys heard about last year. It was really nice. It was like 260 bucks. It popped up like a tent. I couldn't say enough good things about it. I thought it was wonderful. Um, five months into it, um, some of the poles broke. I contacted the uh, manufacturer. They wouldn't sell me just poles. I couldn't even get them. And then we got a big windstorm and it tore it apart. That said, 
the uh, five months I had that greenhouse were really productive. I had vegetables coming into the home uh, throughout the winter, and I had so many things that I started myself that did so much better than any previous time. And it's something I've missed this year, not having a full-size greenhouse. Again, the only reason I'm not building one is we're moving, and it would be one more thing to move or deal with when we're getting ready uh, to sell to uh, a new buyer. So just at a point of diminishing returns, I've decided not to build that here. But that's kind of the dream, I guess, as a greenhouse, is to have something that's walk-in, some shelves and things like that. Now, something I picked up watching a video I've recommended many times. I've watched this video over and over again, and the guy never says anything about it, and I guess that's why I didn't really think about it until last night. I was watching this video I've recommended to this guy down in Australia called Backyard Permaculture. And when he's setting up his trays for inside his greenhouse and potting area, basically his shelves are a wood frame covered, and then the part that the plants sit on is not really chicken wire, but kind of like chicken wire, a smaller grid. So the pots are sitting on that. So instead of making solid wood or solid metal shelves, they're, they're gridded uh, with, with a wire mesh. And when I looked at it, I went, well, that's brilliant. Because it lets all the water and dirt just fall through down to the floor. If you have a dirt floor in your greenhouse, it just gets walked in. If you have a concrete floor, it's easy to sweep up, toss it onto the compost bin because it's all organic material that's falling down through. It'll last forever. It won't rust. If you overwater, it won't accumulate water. It lets the water pass through. And it also creates good airflow in between your plants within your greenhouse. So I wish you would have said that. I'm sure that's why you used it, but it wasn't in the video. I had to pick it up by observation. Uh, but so there's a little recommendation. If you're building shelves for your greenhouse, instead of going out and buying plastic shelves or spending a lot of money by doing them all out of wood, build wood frames and then use a wire mesh to actually sit your plants on. Uh, but that big greenhouse where you can go in and pot and do things like that, that's kind of the dream. That's what, you're, that's what you'd love to have. But you can do so many things on smaller scales. One of the things, if you haven't seen it yet, I've got a video on YouTube. I'll put a link in today's show notes to it. All it is is I have this old 55-gallon um, or 40-gallon breeder uh, fish tank that I used to have reptiles in. I got rid of the reptile that was housed in there, uh, bought some really nice shelving for the reptiles. So I had this extra cage. So I was sitting there looking at it and said, well, this is basically a little mini greenhouse. So I went out in my garden. And I put a bunch of lettuce plants in the ground, and I thought, let me, and I have another uh, uh, fish tank that I could be using for all of the lettuce, but I decided, let's do an experiment. Let's let people see what the difference is, because the lettuce is going to survive, all but the most severe weather here in Texas. So I covered about half the lettuce with the fish tank, and I let the other half go to itself. Go look at that video, and maybe today I'll shoot an update video uh, for you, showing you how big the lettuce plants under the greenhouse are today. Uh, kind of a part two of that. It's really amazing. I, I'll probably shoot that video. I'm going to eat a salad for lunch today. I'm going to go out there and cut some of that lettuce to make a salad out of. And, uh, yeah, I'll go ahead and shoot that for you. So you can have that great big walking greenhouse, and you can have it as small as a fish tank. Now, what I think for a lot of folks, when it comes to, like, starting seeds, which is a big driver for having their greenhouse, um, you can go much, much smaller. You can go and build a four-foot by four-foot by about two foot high box out of stick lumber. Um, I, I'm going to shock you with this. Based on the way that Home Depot, because they're retarded, prices their lumber, the best thing you could probably build that out of is plain old white wood 2x4s. They sell for a dollar 
70 a stick. And a lot of the one by 2s and stuff that's lighter that would seem like a better way to build that uh, actually cost more per linear foot or the same per linear foot. So why make it heavy? Less likely to blow over. Plain and simple. Uh, and easier to work with a 2x4 than a 1x2 when you're building kind of a box frame. 4 foot by 4 foot by 2 foot high box frame. Take a staple gun, cover it with thick polyfilm. Dirt cheap. You could probably build that for what? 15, 20 bucks maximum. And you've got a great place to start seeds. The beautiful thing is since it's small, you're going to limit how much you're going to be putting in there in the first place. So with a small greenhouse like that, you have an issue. And that is, if it gets down to freezing at night, it is going to be freezing inside that little greenhouse. And the smaller, the more likely it is to not maintain its, its solar gain over the night, because it has less area of heat built up. So, you can do a couple different things with this. One, every day, when it's about time to, to go in and the sun's going down, you can go up, pick it up, move it over, pick up all your little seedling trays, bring them in the house in the morning, Wait till it, you know, it's, until the sun's up and shining on your greenhouse. Take them back out there. What that will do is make sure they get good solar exposure. You're going to get much better results out of starting your own seeds that way. But you're going to protect them over the night simply by bringing them into the house. Really, really simple. And it doesn't have to be a four foot by four foot by two foot high. You could build it two foot by two foot by two foot high, depending on how many seeds that you want to start. And that's basically what you're doing now. You could build a more permanent structure and make it basically a cold frame built into the ground. And you could take a big, if you do that, and even with the kind of the, the freestanding little mini greenhouse, you could do this as well. If you have very heavily working compost, compost is already coming up in temperature, you put down a hole in the ground, fill it with working, it has to be working compost. And what I mean by that is it has to have been working for a while. When you stick your hand into the pile, it has to feel warm in there. But if you put that underneath your little mini greenhouse, you create what's called a hot frame. And you can leave it out overnight, and the breaking down compost will keep the temperatures constant. Build it a little bit bigger for safety's sake, okay, a little bit higher, a little bit bigger, and you could go out and get a small ceramic heater, place all of your plants toward the edge, set the heater in the center of that, put it on its absolute lowest setting, and only on nights when it's going to freeze, run the heater. Now you got to make sure you build it big enough and taking into account things like not letting water get into it, putting it on a, a you know, fireproof stand, making sure it's not going to get too hot. But that's, that's a way you could do that. Honestly, I'll tell you what else you could do. Set right in the center of your greenhouse uh, a, a lamp maybe with two outlets and two 100 watt uh, incandescent light bulbs as long as they're still legal to purchase. And then only on nights when it's freezing, turn the lights on. That will probably protect your plants through just about anything. The smaller area needs less heat. And you produce quite a bit of heat from incandescent light bulbs. Now, is it going to cost you electricity? Yes, but these techniques, the heater technique, the light bulb technique, that's really not the best way to handle things where it's always freezing. But for the southern regions where we only have maybe one night a week through this period of time where it's down into the freezing temperatures or maybe two nights a week or maybe we get three or four in a row, but then it's above freezing for the next two weeks, it's more convenient to bring in the plants in the house. 
So when I give you a technique and you go, well, that technique doesn't apply to me, I'm hoping that you're thinking deeper than that because I can only make things apply to people based on where they are and what their goals are. So any te good technique I give you is going to apply to some portion of people and not apply to some other portion of people. But by hearing the technique, it should start turning your light bulb on over your head and making you say, hey, what can I do? Because I've given you solutions now for any region. right? You have all three solutions. Heated compost, bringing the plants into the house at night, or using some sort of external heating source like light bulbs or a small ceramic heater within the mini greenhouse. And you can do that with a large, it's actually much safer and easier with a large greenhouse. You can take a very small ceramic space heater, put that into your greenhouse on its lowest setting, which is probably going to kick it on around 50 degrees. Only turn it on on nights where you're going to have freezing temperatures. Do it before you lose all the solar gain. And in most greenhouses, you know, like a 6x8, that kind of standard hobby size greenhouse, you won't lose anything in there. Because that greenhouse is going to do a very good job of retaining that heat. Now, is it going to keep it nice and warm and toasty in there? No, but it'll keep it above freezing, and that's all that's really necessary. Greenhouses also protect plants by more than just keeping the, the surrounding temperature up. They also prevent um, the accumulation of dew on the plants, which makes things worse for your plants when it's frozen. It's not just that it's frozen. It's all little pieces of ice frozen to the outside of the plant. It's a much more um, inhabitable environment, even down to right into that freezing temperature zone. So these are a lot of things that you can do. I experimented last year with another very simple one. Inside my greenhouse, I put two big black uh, trash cans, $10 from Target. I filled them up with water, put the lids on them, and just left them sit there in the corners where they got hit by the sun. All day long as the temperature in the greenhouse would rise, the temperature in the, uh, the trash cans would rise. And then once the sun went down, the radiant temperature from the trash cans, which is very, very minimal, but on most nights it was sufficient to keep the temperature in the greenhouse above freezing, even if the external temperature would go down into the high 20s just to pull it through the night so that in the morning when that sun hit and brought it back up. And I was able to nurse plants through without any, I didn't do light bulbs, I didn't do ceramic heating, that was all I did. So you can start thinking of other things that you can do. Um, I never thought of this before until I started reading the work of Bill Mollison, but there's absolutely no reason for the north side of your greenhouse to be glass. Sun never hits the north side of anything, not with any significance. But it hits, you know, coming in from the south side, that north-facing or that north-sided wall gets hit through the glass all day long. Build that, that, that back wall out of cinder blocks. Fill the holes in the cinder blocks with PVC pipe. Fill that pipe with water. Paint the wall black. I mean, I don't know. I, I, there, there's just so many things that can be done. Uh, build that wall out of P, uh, cinder block or anything else painted black. On the wall, paste a series of uh, pipes. Paint the pipes black. Now we've got another heat sink that's going to release heat at night. You just really have to think, how can I bend the circumstances that I'm displeased with to fit me? And I think that's one of the big things that most people are guilty of when it comes to gardening, uh, agriculture, permaculture in general. We wax nostalgically for what somebody else has. I found myself doing it when we first came here to Texas and moved back here to Texas. I'd come from this beautiful acre lot 
a little bit more, about an acre and a half lot up in Pennsylvania. Fertile farm ground. The whole little neighborhood was houses that were built on an old farm. Very, very fertile ground. Um, put my garden in. No fertilizer, no nothing. Stuck stuff in the ground. It just grew. It grew like crazy. Little pity plot, about eight foot by eight foot square. I wasn't into square foots back then. I, I didn't know the things that I know now. And I had just everything I could possibly want growing. And I had that mild summer in Pennsylvania to work with and all that rain. And, you know, I, when we moved here to Texas, and I first put my garden in, the first couple beds, I found myself going, man, I wish I was still in Pennsylvania. And I'm like, then I realized, Jack, do you realize how many people in Pennsylvania wish they were here in the south because of the longer growing season and all the other things that go with it? And I started realizing that the solution to all of these perceived problems was to understand the strengths of your region and plant to them and understand the weaknesses in your region and accept or compensate for them depending on what you can do. I cannot compensate for the fact uh, that it does freeze here. I can do things to mitigate that. right? But if I'm going to grow an orange, it's got to have a place that's heated to bring it in at certain times of the year, or it just isn't going to work. And that's a limitation that I have to accept. The fact that the soil here is black clay is not a limitation that I have to accept, because simply by continuously composting and mulching, I can change that, and I make the clay, which was a negative, into a well-worked, highly organic uh, uh, clay. So I've got clay mixed with a lot of organic matter, and I've got it loose now, and I've got extensive and very good water-retaining capabilities. So I've changed, taken the disadvantage of compacted clay, uncompacted it, quit digging it, just keep adding organic matter and piling up on top of it, and as it mixes in and as the soil creatures do their work and do all the work for me, now I have soil that's very, very moisture retentive, which is a much better alternative than something like sand, which seemed like a good idea when I first looked at that black gumbo clay. So really, I want you to start trying to see what are the advantages to your region, because I guarantee you, wherever you are, you have some. Let's move on to another subject, and then we'll kind of come back from that subject, back to greenhouses a little bit, because what I'm going to tell you now may make you think you don't need a greenhouse, and I'm going to come back to why you still do. I think a lot of people, especially in the self-sufficiency realm, the survivalist realm, feel a need to grow plants from seed including tender plants that require a greenhouse for a good start and to be ready by the time they need to go into the ground, like peppers and tomatoes and eggplants and, and other plants like that that we, we generally see in large quantities available from nurseries. This is a two-edged sword. It cuts both ways. If you have a good greenhouse, if you have the, the knowledge, and the knowledge is simply gained by doing, so if you have a, a decent little greenhouse and a decent place to pot your plants, you'll get the knowledge by doing it. I believe you'll get better results starting your own seeds if you have a good setup. And what I mean is good, long, all-day solar exposure to your greenhouse region, uh, a temperate enough climate for that greenhouse to be effective in protecting those plants in the winter months, especially February, March, as you're getting ready to plant them in April or May. Uh, because what will happen is you'll get these very, very healthy plants that were started where they're going to grow, basically. 
and they're not transported very often, and they don't go into shock, and they're not in a huge nursery surrounded with other plants with the potential, uh, greater potential to pick up viral infections and things like that. But if you're not set up to do it, I think you'll have much better results going out and buying your pepper and your tomato plants from a good quality nursery than trying to start them in a kitchen window. These types of plants do not do well with the limited solar exposure they get in something like a kitchen window. Now, there are some other things you can do with that. Again, a simple fish tank upside down will protect your plants during cold days and keep them out in the sun. You have to worry, though, with tomatoes and peppers when they're young, that that might be too much. Even when it's cold, under there might be too much, and they might burn a little bit. So you might need to put a little bit of shade cloth over that fish tank to kind of compensate. Believe it or not, it gets pretty hot under there. And those tender plants can scorch and burn, even if the temperature is relatively low, from the intensity of the light. So you're better off with a, with a reasonably sized, at least, you know, maybe that 4 by 4 by 2 cube greenhouse that you build yourself with polyfilm, uh, with using the polyfilm that's a little bit whitish looking, so it has to, helps to filter the light. Uh, but it, it, let me put it to you another way. If you are going to plant six or less tomato plants, it's probably not worth starting your own seeds, other than to gain the skill, or because you're growing a very special type of tomato and you want to save your own seed, you want to propagate a tomato that's maybe going out. And we're going to talk about seed savers exchange at the end and why I think you should be part of that, too. Um, so in that case, I would understand. But if you're going to plant a half dozen tomatoes and you want to plant three varieties, let's say uh, brandy wine, a beefsteak, and a cherry, um, it doesn't make sense to start two tomato plants of each variety. You would probably do three or four and give a couple away. You need So unless you're really set up to do it, I would say with your tender plants, go buy them. Especially if you're a new gardener, it's going to help you kind of get started right and get less discouraged. Now, even if you're doing that, I still think you need a greenhouse of some sort, even if it's one of these small mini greenhouses, because right now you could be growing things to eat. Again, I'll go out today and harvest some lettuce and I'll video it so you can see that I'm eating out of my garden even now when the ground was actually frozen Honest to God, I know it's Texas, but white ice on the grass, soaking wet ground, no sinking, totally frozen solid this morning. And yet I'm going to go out as soon as uh, the show's over and I get caught up on some tech support. And it's going to be about 11 a.m. and it's going to be time for my, my lunch. And I'm going to go out and pick fresh salad for lunch. Um, from the lettuce under the little greenhouse and from spinach, it's not even covered. There's a lot of things that you can do to create a growing environment for winter-type crops. Again, these would be things like radishes, beets, spinach, lettuce, and carrots. Let me give you a great idea you could do. Go out to a junkyard or scrapyard or you know any place you can buy secondhand goods. Look for an old, beat-up, but serviceable glass door, like people have on the front of their house. Plenty of them out there. People build entire greenhouses out of them. You only need one. Build a frame out of two by sixes so that the door can go into it just like a door frame that it would hang on, but put it on the ground. Set it over top of one of your raised beds or set it somewhere by itself and grow in containers or create a new raised bed for that to go on. Inside of that box, put down a nice layer of compost and mulch, grow spinach, carrots, lettuce, anything that's winter hardy. The door easily opens. Build yourself a little prop to prop it open when it's too hot. When it's cold, close it. 
You've got a little mini greenhouse that sits on the ground that can be opened. If you do it right, you can actually build the door onto a frame that's easily removed so that once you pass the winter months, you can just kind of pick it up, take it away, and, and set it somewhere off, you know, until it's needed again. How simple is that? How, how utterly simple is that? Give the outside of that, that wood frame a good coating of Thompson's water seal. Thompson's water seal is really non-toxic, folks. It's basically wax. And if you only paint the outside, the inside doesn't really need that much protection. It'll last three years like that. When it does, the wood start, it starts to go. The door's probably still good, which you paid nothing for. Tear the wood down, you know, use it for, for burning outside or what have you, and build another frame. But you'll get five to ten years out of that wood frame if you just use Thompson's water seal once a year, and you can buy a spray can of it for something that's that small. There's so many ways that you can extend your growing season. It, it can be as simple as when plants are really small, uh, go to going to swap meets and secondhand, you know, garage sales and stuff like that, and look for things like the the clear Tupperware boxes when people are selling those. Amass a collection of those, and just on certain times go out and just cover your plants with them. Even if you then put like a, a blanket over top of that, that'll keep the blanket from coming down and squishing them and giving them an extra layer of protection. You can grow something most of the year in most of the United States, with a few exceptions. I know there's places where you guys are like zone two, and it's dark, and the sun's not out in certain parts of Alaska. I understand that. Again, now you have to deal with your limitations there. Now are you growing inside with grow lights? I don't know what you're going to do in those situations, but in all but those extremes, for the majority of this audience, and around the world, for God's sakes, this can be done anywhere. This could be done in Iraq. This could be done in Iran. This could be done in Afghanistan, Japan. Uh, a lot of these things are being, are from Japan. A lot of the techniques we talk about are from the Arabic areas. They're from Iraq. Uh, not really what we've talked about today, but things like uh, um, how to create swales and run uh, passive irrigation systems. Those techniques are largely derived from the way that, that Arabic people farmed in the Middle East and the way that Asian people farmed in the Far East. The, a lot of these techniques come from those areas. In Morocco, uh, Jeff, Jeff Lawton uh, does a little video you can find on YouTube. I'll try to link that today. There's a food forest there that's like 2,500 years old. 2,000 years. And it's still producing a food forest that was planted when Jesus Christ was on the planet. Oh, you yeah, think about that for a history. And it's still there. So there's adaptations that can be made beyond just annual plantings. So let's, uh, as we get ready to wrap up, let's talk a little bit about um, going outside of the uh, vegetable garden bed and outside the greenhouse and thinking about things that are more of, let's say, a perennial, things that come back and the reasons for doing that. Most of the things that we've talked about up to now that we were talking about growing are annual vegetables. And what I mean by annuals is they're going to die. Even if you keep them in a greenhouse, they have a life expectancy. They become non-productive and they, they reach an end of life. And then they're good for feeding you know, the, the scraps to the chickens and, and turning the rest into compost and returning them to the soil. And that's part of the cycle and there's nothing wrong with that. The downside of that, though, is that for you and I, we have to go out there every year and begin this cycle again. We have to start tender plants again. Now, there's some things that we can do um, with, with perceived annuals. If you take pepper plants 
and you keep them inside a greenhouse, and you keep them from freezing, and you bring them into a house or heat the greenhouse when it's going to get below freezing. And if you'll do that with rather large containers, you can have, let's say, maybe half a dozen pepper plants that you keep for up to five years. And all you have to do is they'll start to kind of, at that point, start to kind of get old, and it's about time for those guys even to stop living. But uh, a pepper is basically a perennial. It's not an annual. We grow them as annuals because they're from tropical regions where it doesn't freeze. But the only reason our pepper plants die every year, folks, isn't because they're, they're just annuals. They die every year because it freezes. So maybe six pepper plants or even four pepper plants isn't enough to give you all the peppers you need. But by protecting a few plants that are kept in containers, right, you'll be able to have peppers maybe not so much through the winter. They're not going to produce well. But they'll live, and they'll start producing much earlier than the rest of your plants. But even with that, there's this constant kind of maintenance cycle. And, and there's some good in that because we get some personal satisfaction from doing it. Trust me, even when I work hard in my garden and I'm sweaty and dirty, I feel good about it. So that's a positive aspect. But when it comes to feeding ourselves, uh, it requires that constant cycle. So what we need to do is augment that with some things that will feed us without that constant input. That maybe they need a first year, they need to be taken care of like little babies and baby through, but once that's over, other than during the driest parts of the year, giving them some extra supplemental water, they take care of themselves. So these are going to be our trees, our bushes, and our vines. And let me tell you, if you want to start eating soon, focus on vines and bushes. You can plant some trees, I think you should. You should plant them now. You should have planted them yesterday. If you didn't plant them yesterday, you should have planted them the day before. And if you didn't plant them then, you should have planted them last year. They take the longest to grow. Getting them into the ground and getting them started and growing is an imperative. You may have to remove some non-productive trees to get some productive trees in. You may simply have to trim out some non-productive trees to get some productive trees in. You may not have a lot of area. You may need to do uh, uh, espalaring where you take and you grow trees in a two-dimensional shape along a fence or a wall. I don't care what you're doing. Trees are going to take at least several years, if not five years or more, to really get into good, heavy production for you. And some types of trees, even once they're mature, don't produce well every year. Peaches are a perfect example. You usually get an okay crop one year, almost no crop the next year, and then you get like every third year you get a big, heavy crop of peaches, if you don't have fruit fry problems. So trees are a long-term proposition. There's nothing that can match their production once they're mature. One mature apple tree, even a semi-dwarf apple tree, produces so much food that basically one or two trees will overload a family with what they can deal with. So that's a good aspect. But then you have the time differential. We've got to eat on the way. I used to explain this when I would talk about sales and my sales training with if you're going out and you're trying to take just big accounts, it's like going out hunting for elephants. Elephants are great. They'll feed the village for a long time, but you have to shoot some rabbits and some squirrels along the way or some small game along the way of one sort or another so that you can eat until you find your elephant. So that's kind of how trees are. They're like the elephant. They have huge biomass. They drop every year if they're deciduous, and that can all be turned into compost. Those are the leaves that everybody else throws away. They can be cosmist for firewood, and they produce massive amounts of food but they're long-term plants. So we come in and we start planting bushes. Bushes plant things like, and it'll be creative and go outside of the norm. Gooseberries, honeyberries, 
um, goji berries, aronia, elderberries, okay? And then go to some of your common things, blueberries, blackberries, raspberries, currants. And if you start planting things like that, you'd be amazed at how much of that you can stack into even a small yard. And what I mean by stacking is plant your highest growing things to the back and your lowest growing plants to the front so that you make more effective use of the vertical space. And you can do your spacing um, horizontally uh, as much as is necessary for the plants. So whatever the, 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 the supplier of the plants recommends. So if they're supposed to be 12 feet apart, fine. But you can actually plant your next row of things that grow at a shorter height much closer than that recommended space. You can plant them staggered in the intervals. So you can create basically a mini tree canopy system out of your bushes. And then come in with climbers. And climbers, I don't think people realize how many vines are out there that produce things that are edible and what they can grow. Kiwis are one of the greatest things you could possibly grow. They're a they're perceived exotic fruit with uh, maybe eight to, eight to ten vines. You can probably produce so many kiwis, you'll never use them all. And you can make a little side income at your local farmer's market, even by going and finding someone there who already has a spot and just saying, I'd like to kind of come in, I'll provide you with the kiwis, and we'll split the cost. They'll cost you nothing unless you, uh, and when the ones you sell, we split the cost on the ones you don't sell, I'll take back and we'll discard. Most places you'll be able to find somebody willing to do that with you. Huge heavy producers, mature vine, which takes two to three years to become mature, 100 pounds per vine. And if you pick them when they're uh, hard, you can put them in the refrigerator, and they'll stay hard until you take them out and put them on the shelf and let them bled or ripen, depending on what you call it. Uh, so there's a great uh, potential resource that you can plant that most people don't think will grow in their area. Kiwis will grow anywhere from the tropics down into zone three or, or even colder with certain varieties. There's an Arctic beauty kiwi. Uh, you need a male and a female minimum uh, to get cross-pollination. And the male of that variety is a beautiful plant. It's got green, white, and pink leaves. And you can, I think you can do one male to up to eight plants. I would not go, I would do one to four because it's just worth the extra uh, pollination capabilities. Um, uh, you know, obviously grapes are a great vining plant. Uh, that I think uh, most people overlook. They think that certain areas you can't grow grapes. You have to be in California or, you know, or the Finger Lakes region of New York. Well, think about the, the variance there. Southern Cal, right, or even Central California in, 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 the, uh, in the real wine region versus the Finger Lakes region of New York. There's a lot of difference in those two climates. That means wherever you are, except, again, if you're going to write me and you're from Alaska where it's dark six months a year, I understand. But anywhere else, you can probably grow grapes. And you can use these plantings to do more than feed yourself and provide yourself a resource. You start to understand how to, under, uh, to control the energy flow within your property. So maybe what you do is you build a deck. You build a deck on the side of your home that gets sun. Okay? Over the top of that deck, you build an open cover. So you know what I'm talking about. You've got your pillars going up, and you've got your, like, say, two-by-sixes spaced one foot apart growing as crossed uh, intervals. They provide some mottled shade. Now you plant grapevines to go up uh, your, uh, your, your pillars, and you train your grapevines out across your cover. Now, in the summertime, you walk out. As the grapes ripen, you can reach up and pluck grapes from over your head. But all of those leaves over your head are providing shade. 
while the sun, the sun is up there beating down on the deck, it's not beating down on you. You've created a natural canopy system that will work better than an artificial canopy system because it has its own, own capabilities for thermal regulation because it has moisture that it adjusts and adapts to the day's temperatures with. On top of this, in the wintertime, you've harvested all the grapes, you've done whatever, you, you know, you've made wine, jelly, juice, raisins, whatever it is you wanted to do with your grapes, all the leaves fall off, you do a little bit of pruning to keep them from going crazy, and now the sun can come in and warm that side of the house during the time of the year where you want the sun's rays in. You start to see how all of these things kind of fit together. You know, get creative and experiment and start bringing multifunction things together. So maybe one of your climbers that you bring in to climb up a fence or climb up another plant or climb up a deck or any structure would be wolfberry, um, also known as goji berry. And um, that's actually a vine, and it's a climber. And it's hardy to zone six. And it's, it's actually a relatively good food source, but it's also a medicinal. So you bring in a food, a medicinal, a climber, and something that's deciduous and loses leaves in the, uh, the, the wintertime. So place it somewhere where it's advantageous to create shade uh, in the summer, but it's also advantageous to not create shade in the winter. You can do this with most of your deciduous vines. And it doesn't always have to be shading the home. It might be shading the plant. You might use a climber. Uh, to create a shade zone to plant lettuces that can handle the summer but really don't want that direct sunlight. And then that same area is opened up to direct sunlight where you can now plant a winter lettuce that will appreciate the, the, uh, the, the sun in the winter. You just have to start understanding that designing is, is, is far more important than just gardening. And to design, you have to understand the way energy flows across your property. Where does the harsh winter wind come from? Where does the harsh summer wind come from? What is the angle of the sun in the summertime? What is the angle of the sun in the wintertime? That's going to change. Where is the cool breeze from? Where can you put a water structure where it will do the most good? Um, another um, vine that you can consider growing is uh, called porcelain berry. That's a cool little plant. Uh, it's actually hardy to zone 5. Uh, Tasmania vine is hardy to zone 8, so that's only certain parts of the, uh, the country that you can grow those in. But there's, there's always something that will kind of fit the bill. There's even a thing called cinnamon vine, hardy to zone 4, and it basically grows kind of a nutty potato cinnamon flavored tuber. And it's a cool-looking vine, so you can dig it up when it's reached maturity and harvest the tuber. And maybe you don't ever harvest it. Maybe you just let it grow, and you know it's there as a reserve food source. Um, a lot of people think you can't grow passion flowers. Uh, passion flowers produce an abundance of passion fruit. Uh, it, it's so useful in so many ways. But what are you going to do? Because most passion flowers are what you need, like zone nine or higher for them. Well, you can grow them in containers and bring them in in the wintertime or keep them in a greenhouse in the wintertime or you can grow our native passion flora. Uh, there's a plant called maypop and maypop is hardy down to zone 5. It'll fle freeze absolutely to the ground it'll come back year after year and it produces its own variety of passion fruit. Uh, next up in the vine category that's a perennial comes back over and over again not so much a food but a very useful item especially for the home brewer a couple hop vines. They grow like crazy, grow like mad, easy to reproduce by just uh, cutting off pieces of rhizomes after they're established. And you produce this beautiful, lovely, fragrant scent 
Also a great thing to grow over a patio. If you're a brewer, you have the hot flowers. If you don't use the hot flowers, you take the, the, the leaves that fall off uh, as the plant matures and reaches the end of its life cycle for that season and use them as a mulching component. Uh, they're also very repellent to pests. So, I mean, there's so many things that can be done if people will open up to the things that are available to them instead of worrying about the things that are not. But this all starts in the winter. It all starts in the winter because if you don't start planning now, you're not going to plan well in the summer. You're going to just go buy stuff and try to figure out what to do with it. See, the beauty of the winter is there's only so much you actually can do. It's a good time to build things, and it's a good time to plan. This is a time to sit down with a, with a notebook and draw a sketch of your front, back, and side yards and realize that it's all on the table. You can grow things in the front yard. You can grow things in the backyard. I don't care if your neighbors don't like the fact that you have some vegetables in the front yard. They'll learn to live with it, especially if you do it nice and pretty and integrate it and make it a, a nice part of your landscape. Look at all the flower beds in the front of America's yards. You know what grows beautiful flowers and then turns into wonderful bright red berries and makes a very attractive ornamental that once established needs almost no help whatsoever and continuously repropagates itself and people spend mountains of money on to buy in the store? Strawberries. Why don't we put strawberries in our flower beds? Is this not insane? You have this beautiful little green plant. It grows beautiful little white flowers and beautiful red ornamental berries, which are actually stems. The fruit of a strawberry is actually the seed. But let that go. It reproduces itself. It needs almost no help. In the wintertime, if you're not in a place where it dies back to the ground, temporarily needs to be mulched over, the leaves, because they're getting less sunlight, turn red. But they stay alive, and they'll turn back to green. What a wonderful landscaping uh, plant. Just absolutely beautiful landscaping plant. And in the times of the year where they're producing, you walk out your door, you're on your way to work, you're not happy about it, you look down, there's a great, big, beautiful, red, ripe berry. Pick that, that's part of your breakfast on your way to the car. That'll start your day off better. I mean, we really need to understand, though, that this is the time where we can sit back and we don't feel rushed to just get things done, to draw things out. Draw that map of your property. Draw your sun path. Just, you know, where does the sun start and end and a little diagonal line, a little dotted line for a winter track? Try to remember where is it in the summer. You'll probably be able to figure it out by looking at where it's at right now and figure that it probably got lower in the sky. The lowest in the sky it was was December 21st. That's your low point, and then your high point is going to be June uh, 1st. And it's always going to move in that area. Look at everything that you have on your property. What kind of shadow is it going to cast based on the way the sun falls that way? How can you use it to your advantage? Are there some things that need to go? Are there some things that just need to be pruned? What can you place where? Understand the symbiotic relationship that these plants have with each other, and instead of fighting nature, make it work together for you. This is the time to plan that type of arrangement. And as simple as it sounds, when you sit down, and start to draw these things out and think beyond the raised beds. And that's what I want you to do with this. Think beyond the beds. Don't just plant annual vegetables in the raised beds either. All along your fence, you could go out and every foot stick a runner bean in the ground as soon as it's warm enough to plant them. They'll grow, mulch the bottom, water it. And whatever else is out there, just let them grow in with it. I grew scarlet runner beans up my peach tree last year. It worked beautifully. I mulched the hell out of them. I watered them about once a week with two gallons of water. That was it. The peach tree went absolutely nuts 
after the uh, it had already done its peaches for the year, but its growth went crazy after the beans started to kind of die off, right before the peach lost its leaves. It had this last little growth spurt. Why? Because all of those nitrogen nodules, those beans had produced, dropped in the soil, and it didn't get to use that many of them. So this spring, they're all sitting there waiting for when that tree starts shedding its buds. That tree's going to do beautifully this year. Because I went outside of the, you know, the dynamic that people lock themselves into. Vegetables go in the vegetable garden. No, beans are a forest plant. Plant your beans in a place where they'll get sun edges of forest environments. I live in a backyard. I have a backyard suburbia. I don't have a forest environment. If you have a tree or a group of trees or maybe some bushes, you have a forest environment for your beans. You have a place with mixed shade and sun. That's where a bean really belongs, not baking in the middle of a field. And the same thing with most of your vining squashes. They're not field plants. They're natively forest plants. Butternut squash, crookneck uh, squash, um, all of your, your blue hubbards, all of these squashes that, that vine, they're forest plants. Why do you think their leaves are as big as your face? to make maximum use of the sun. If they were designed to grow in the middle of a sunny field, they wouldn't have those huge leaves. They wouldn't need them. They'd have small leaves like a pepper. They'd have small leaves like a tomato. Doesn't that make sense? That's why they have, that's why they've evolved that way. And then we sit them out in the middle of this baking field. We say they love heat, but in the middle of the summer, they wilt every day. And we go, what the hell's wrong with them? It's too hot. It's too much. Too much of a good thing is a bad thing, right? So try incorporating these things. Uh, Bill Wilson from Midwest Permaculture planted this squash plant out by one of his pine trees. And he thought it died. It just disappeared. He went, oh, I guess it didn't make it. And then like weeks later, he goes on the backside of the pine tree, and the whole plant has grown up into the pine. This is one of these like northern pines where the, the, the brows come almost all the way to the ground. So it's like climbing through this dark pine tree. And he's got about a four-pound butternut squash. He's got a picture on his website hanging on the backside of this tree with nobody taking care of the plant because the, underneath that tree is moisture. This is another thing people don't get. When you plant trees, trees, uh, shrubs, vines, anything with lots of biomass, every night, just like you can build a solar still in the ground and cover it with a tarp and it'll drip water, every night dew accumulates, right? Moisture accumulates on the trees and on the bushes and on the vines. A lot of it drops off and goes to the ground. In many parts of the country, 20% of the annual precipitation is from that effect. It's not actually rain. Everything you do to enhance the amount of biomass and carbon uptake in your backyard makes the entire system work better. Start to see every place that you have as a potential place to grow something either beneficial or edible. Sometimes you grow things that aren't edible for you, but they're beneficial to the entire system. But the big thing is to get creative. Go out and go today to Raintree Nursery's website. I'll put a link up. Get their catalog. Just go through that and look at all the things you can grow. I'm not even saying necessarily to buy from them. I've bought from them once. They did a good job. I've heard people that say they didn't do a great job. I guess it depends on what you order and when you order it. But I'm saying understand the varieties that are available and learn about them. It's one thing to know that, you know, goji berries are good and that they, they grow down to zone six. But it's more important that you know what type of uh, wildlife do they attract. You know, it, it's another thing to be able to say, well, for instance, there's a plant that the common name is Gumi. 
All right. It's uh, Elegenis multiflora is the the uh, the Latinic name of this plant. It produces a great little kind of red berry, wonderful little red berry. Plant is hardy to zone six. Uh, plant for it, free apart. You make a hedge out of them. Great to know all that. But you know what's even more important to know that this is a plant that even though it produces a fruit, fixes nitrogen in the soil. So now that we can take that and combine it and plant it with something else. Uh, and stack it in succession with something like a grove of figs. So we plant and intermix maybe three fig trees and three uh, gummies. And then the, we, we take and we coscus the gummies once in a while and prune them down and keep them smaller than the fig trees. We let the fig trees get higher. And if figs don't grow in your areas, plant something else. I mean, that's the big thing. I, you know, you start giving people plant combinations, they go, well, I can't grow figs. Okay, the, the, the scooby goes to the sticks, and figs are kind of a zone set. Well, first of all, the figs will do just fine uh, into colder zones with the right ones. But, you know, I'll humor you. So plant it with apples. You see, you get get that understanding in that it's it's about combining traits and understanding that this is a nitrogen fixer that also produces food. The same thing can be said of sea berry. Um, sea berry is very good for vitamin C content. Good juice producer, very hardy, grows anywhere. Almost can become invasive if you don't control it enough. But it's a nitrogen fixer. Grows extremely fast. You can outproduce what you'll ever use with a few plants. Great. Now I've got a coppicing method. So, and even though I can't grow these uh, these legume trees that Jeff Lawton does down in the tropics and do chop and drop, I can grow things like uh, um, sea berry. And I can take my excess sea berry, cut it, keep it low. Drop it, that makes mulch, and I'm fixing nitrogen. And when you take a nitrogen-fixing plant, a perennial tree or bush, and it grows to, let's say, six feet high, and it's a tree that will handle cosmosing, and you cut it from six feet down to three feet, and you drop everything to the ground, the root system in the ground cuts itself back by about half as well. It has to. Because it doesn't have the canopy above, because trees and bushes are water pumps, is basically what they are. And to pump the water up the root system, you have to have kind of an equivalent biomass arrangement. It's not exactly equivalent, but there's an equivalency ratio there. So what happens is on that root system are all these little nitrogen nodules, but they're, they're kind of holding tight to that root system. But when the root system drops off, they fall into the soil, and they become accessible to the companion plants. And then come into that arrangement of figs and gummies and plant climbers. They can even be annual climbers. Plant beans in there. Scarlet runner beans. Kentucky wonder pole beans. I don't care what kind. Plant them in their time. Let them run up. As they die, they add to the mulch of the system. That system will be very self-sustaining. Only needs supplemental watering in the very dry periods. Very small. Highly productive. Put together that way. That's what permaculturists call a guild. People start saying, what guild do I use? Just try them. Try anything you want. The big thing I want you to start doing is learn beyond where the plant will grow and what the plant needs. What are its outputs? What does it produce? Not just what does it produce for you, the consumer. What does it produce for the other producers? Is it deciduous? Do the leaves fall off? Can it be cosmist? Is it something that's a type of tree that can be grown long term and maybe once every five years really pruned back? Cosmist. That excess goes to the shredder for compost and for mulch, and the bigger pieces of it go to fire would. You start to realize that very small pieces of a property can fulfill very big functions. 
But it all starts now. It all starts in the winter. Because now is when you have the time to sit down and think about these bigger inputs. And what does this have to do with survivalism? It has everything to do with survivalism. Because if you can feed yourself, you've got most of what you need to stay alive. If you're going to be feeding yourself with a garden, well, you have to have a source of water. So now you've got water. If you're going to be growing stuff, you have to have somewhere to live. So now you've got shelter. Food, shelter, water. What does that remind us of? Basic rules of wilderness survival. We need water, we need to eat, and we need to shelter ourselves from the elements. It's as basic as it gets, folks. That's why all over the world, where they don't have the arrogance that we do in this country because we've been so successful, and they still have to worry about whether they're going to eat tomorrow, people grow things, and people have always grown things. And one of the biggest things that separates us from the animals uh, of the animal kingdom, even our closest relations, the primates, is that we can think and build contingencies. And part of building contingencies is realizing we must feed ourselves in the future. There are real threats out there to our food supply. Real threats. Genuine threats. Not made-up stuff. Not eco-hippie, bush-hippie, freaky stuff. We're flat-out depleting fossil aquifers. You will not run out of water to drink in your lifetime. I don't believe that will happen. Unless you live in a desert and you're already getting it from somewhere else. But in most places, there will be enough water to drink. But will there be enough water to grow enough food for 7 billion or 8 billion people? That's a totally different dynamic. We already have land literally dying in California from one drought. Both a natural drought and compounded by man-made stupidity. There's threats out there. But the solution is in your backyard. And I don't care if you live in the deserts of Phoenix, Arizona, the sandy flats of Florida, the gumbo clay of North Texas where I'm at, or if you're lucky and live in the Middle West, Midwest, why I say Middle, Midwest with some of the most fertile farmland in the world. I don't care where you are. You've probably got the opportunity to feed yourself. You've probably got land that's been damaged. You can be part of healing the land. And if Another you heal day. the land, the land will turn back and reward Another you and meet you and provide for you for generations to come. This is Mitch Axe with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life. I'm Utah. You can holler. It really doesn't matter. Cause it all gets spent.